Hello and welcome to I'm So Obsessed, where we get the inside take from actors, artists, and creators on their work, the career, and the things they obsess about. I'm your host, Connie Guillermo. The first time I saw Talia Shire on screen, she made quite an impression on me. I had a chance to talk to Talia Shire about working on The Godfather and Rocky, about the wisdom she got from old Hollywood legends, including Barbara Stanwyck and Burgess Meredith, about her newest film, Working Man, about how she charges her sons, Jason and Robert Schwartzman, 50 cents each for acting lessons, and about her current obsession, finding ways to give a second life to old movies. A quick note, because of COVID-19 and shelter in place, our conversation was recorded over the internet. I'm in Silicon Valley, and Talia Shire spoke with me from her home in Los Angeles. So be prepared if the audio sounds a little bit quirky. I've been reading some interviews that you've been giving, and, and people are obviously asking you what you're doing in quarantine. And I love that you said you were watching Turner Classic Movies and uh, The Red Shoes being one of your favorite films. But Three Dogs is also keeping you busy, I'm sure. Yes, and one dog, and I recently adopted this one French bulldog, happens to love black and white and technicolor, real <laughs> technicolor. So I, I, I remember the first night she came here, I actually was able to get on TCM the original Robin Hood in Technicolor. Oh, my I, gosh. It calmed her down. That is that is one of my favorite movies and my kids because of the wonderful line in that movie, which is Maid Marian says to Robin Hood, you speak treason, and he says fluently. Which I oh, think. that is, wait a minute, you're, you, wow, Connie, you speak treason fluently. Well, we, we understand that language as being, is, is around today. Anyway. Yes. <laughs> Well, so you're watching TCM, and I know uh, you said black and white. What, mm-hmm. what, what, what else are you watching? Just, I'm curious. I'm, I'm also listening to radio programs. It's, it's called the BBC uh, Radio Broadcast, Radio Theater, and I just was listening to Bill Nahi and a really hilarious uh, four episodes uh, playing a, an actor, right? An actor detective. Now that's that combination is is quite amazing. So I enjoy also the listening experience as well as the viewing of great old movies. I saw, I did have to tell you, I saw Dodsworth this morning. Mm-hmm. That. Yeah, that's an old movie. That's fabulous. Well, I read that you had a good friend, Barbara Stanwyck, who I, you know, the Lady Eve is one of my favorites as well. Can I ask, how did you become friends with Barbara Stanwyck? Well, she was, uh, you know, in that period of time, when Rocky was uh, uh, just out and was suddenly a unexpected, by the way, it was an unexpected box office success, I received some phone calls um, from uh, people here and there. And one was a, a columnist, and she said, you know, Barbara Stanwyck would would like, like to meet you. I said, my God, she'd like to meet me. And so we ha- we started to have lunch together. And as a matter of fact, um, when I, I was nominated for that movie, but I, I, you know, those were the days when you you didn't get all dolled up for the Academy Awards and I didn't buy my shoes yet. But first I had lunch with Barbara Stanwyck at the, at the Beverly Hills hotel. I wouldn't miss that for the world. And she said, what are you doing here? I said, I can't miss lunch with you. And then I went and bought my shoes. (laughs) <laughs> but, but I wanted to learn. I wanted very much to learn 
uh, first of all, I, I'll tell you the truth. I am a film buff and I, I, I will watch movies in slow motion. Watch the old dance movies or even the um, Esther Williams. But I, I was watching her in slow motion because I love to see how many cuts it took. That means how much coverage it took for her to get from one place to the other in a scene. And I became fascinated with her body language and just her, her greatness. And she said to me, you know, you act for this space. Now, we're, we're doing a podcast. What that means, it's the frame. That's why people put their thumbs, they reach their thumbs out, right, Connie? Mm-hmm. And then they do that sort of square look. Mm-hmm. Acting is you drop, you act for the cut or for the frame. So she was an extraordinary technician. Uh, and she said, be careful not to put your face down when you're acting, <laughs> which I do because I'm shy. So, But she was a, a remarkable... Uh, she was, I'm going to use this word, a professional. She was the first one on the set after lunch. She knew her lines. That is the kind of um, wonderful performer, a really wonderful, wonderful artist. And what a body of work, huh? That's uh, an amazing body of work. And I loved that she loved Rocky. That's why she wanted to meet you. I, I and I have to just just tell you this little aside that was very sweet yes and I also wanted to meet another film favorite and I was just about to meet her and that was Ida Lupino oh my goodness because I was you know she really was a great director as well uh but when I do movies I don't act that much Connie but when I do especially low budget movies which are my favorite and you meet a young passionate group of people that come aboard to make a movie. I feel it is my obligation as the older person <laughs> to tell them, hey, you want to know about Barbara Stanwyck? I'll tell you about Barbara Stanwyck. She said, act for this space. You want to know about Burgess Meredith? I'll tell you about it. Because that's how we do it. We have to pass it on. Mm-hmm. What uh, did, uh, did you get to meet Ida Lupino? What did she tell you? I didn't. We, oh. we had conversations. You know, I watch a lot of the movies that she, obviously, uh, she, you know, she was a fa- from a family of circus performers in England, um, uh, clowns, mimes. And then she came over to America, great actress, by the way, but she was also a great director. Which I have to say, I did not know that she was a great director. And it's wonderful to know that an actress who was very popular in the 40s and 50s when there were not, well, there's still not enough women directors, but she directed at that time. She That's did. That's amazing. And she was, she did, as I recall, three movies, but, uh, but she was, she, she was also another, you know, you, I love those wonderful professionals who had, we don't have that today. But there was a studio system. And by the way, I miss one aspect of it because the the great studios, if you go, if you were to visit them, you know, they were, they they had costume departments and makeup departments. People knew what a square bun was for your hair. There was so much, so many gifted people. There were film libraries. There were, it was an extraordinary place. And that particular, and I, I consider it a golden age, where the great mu- and musicians were working all the time. So it was an incredible place to go every day, right? 
Mm-hmm. And these people came from that golden age. And I would always seek them out because I wanted to understand how they prepared themselves and how they lived their life and went to work and were mothers, right? I was interested in how do you do that? And what's the secret? Is there one? <laughs> oh, God. Well, I think that the, you have to be... Yes. You have to be in service of your work, not the other way around. You have to come from a solid center so that you can also enjoy your family life. One of the, the things that, I, I, that I'm sad about with not having studios working here is that the actor in the old days could get up from his bed, go to work, and then come back to his own bed and family. Here, it's you're sort of all over the place, so it's it's much more uh, complicated for family life. Well, I think it's super interesting that you talk about the studio system, and I I hear what you're saying that there's structure, a place you could go and learn. So many people with very specific talents and skills, and a lot of that I I fear is lost because. Those are like apprenticeship and guild programs almost in every aspect of movie making. And you're right. It's so um, spread out and disparate today. So where do you go to learn all of those things? You, but you, you don't. And the thing about acting is acting is doing. You, acting is doing. You must be in the doing. And to be an apprentice, that was what it was. The, the hairdresser worked with the hairdresser. Making something making a movie or theater, it is a doing thing. And it is a wonderful idea to have everybody together where you can share. You know, you go to work and you can stop and you could talk to those musicians who are getting ready to, to add, right, that glorious piece of music and what that means. So you could pull it all together because movies are sound, right, which is 50% mm-hmm. of the illusion. Uh, but I, 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 I fear we, we threw out a little bit too much of the baby with the bathwater. I think we needed those great, those great movie studios because they were like great campuses, you know, you could take art classes, You could, which they did at night. A lot of the production designers were all taking art classes at night. Isn't that interesting? Well, let's contrast that, though, with your um, career. I mean, you've obviously been in some very impressive large-scale movies, but you also have this affinity for independent films, which by default, Roger Corman, et cetera, are scrappy oh. affairs where you are – you're making something out of nothing, literally, sometimes. I think you were talking about like finding a towel or a tissue box or whatever on set yeah. Yeah. and transforming that. So uh, tell me about what it's like working on small films or independent films. And did you view, uh, well, The Godfather, probably not given the scale of that, but was Rocky? Did it have that vibe to you? Rocky was an independent movie, and Rocky really was that low-budget movie. Uh, and it and and when I brought up Burgess Meredith, I did that for a reason because obviously he was in that movie, and we I I I I could not believe his generosity. This this great uh, actor and director, he was so kind. Um, but. Uh, Yes, about making a towel into something else. Roger Corman is very interesting that you bring him up because he's, my God, the contribution he made and continues to make. His feeling was, if you give a talented person a job and you say, here, I have over here five different kinds of props, go make a story about it. They will. 
And uh, and so he really was able to start a lot of extraordinary talent, Francis included. But, you know, creative people love transformation. They love playing around with uh, props, even on a big budget. I mean, I don't want to say that that kind of imagination and creativity doesn't exist. It exists in both places because you are struggling to make a little bit of magic every single day. Your character in Rocky, Adrian Panina, that was your mother's last name. And I think a lot of people know that you helped contribute to that role. But you were talking about props, and I was just thinking about the glasses and the hat. Ah. Um, So can you talk about, well, how did she get your mother's last name? Obviously, you must have given it to her as you were developing. Yes. My mother, Italia Panino, was born in Brooklyn, and she would say to me, you know, Francis, nobody knows I'm his mother. Who's going to know that I, and you know, she was an interesting woman. Uh, I think a powerful woman held down in a way. And I decided, but they came to me and they said, what would you like, uh, you know, Adrian's last name could be? And I said, Panino. And that was, that was really from my mother. Um, now about the, the props. Yes. Uh, you know, we that was it was a low it was a low budget movie, and our director said, uh, you know, Sylvester, ta- we want uh, go out, go out to the different shops, to the Goodwill shops, and bring back the costumes. So I went, oh wow! I mean, this is that's the kind of uh, training, by the way, I had in drama school that the actor is involved in their costume because it's a statement of character. But unfortunately, that doesn't always happen in the uh, commotion of a large movie. You participate. But this was, we bought our own stuff. I mean, you know, obviously it was reimbursed. But I went to my optometrist, um, Dr. William Alpert, and I said, you know what, I I want her to wear glasses. And he gave me those glasses. And those glasses were, were, were part of that character, I thought. Absolutely. And the hat as well. Oh, the hat. That hat. hat. Yes. Yes. I, I, you know, I used to see, I used to see, I want to say shy girls dressed like that. You know, uh, when I used to go in for ballet lessons, right, on the train and the bus to get there uh, in New York, I would see a lot of uncomfortable women with themselves, with their heads down, dressed like that. You, know, you don't offer that kind of girl a seat. And I wanted to make Adrian that that kind of girl that you won't, that is sort of discarded because uh, so is Rocky. These are discarded people who find each other. What was the best moment of working on Rocky for you? I mean, you've told many, many stories over the year. Uh, you've talked about Burgess Meredith and his generosity. Yeah. And are yeah. some of some people, I'm sad to say, listening to this won't even know who Burgess Meredith is, or Ida Lupino, or I'm sorry to say Barbara Stanwyck. So I hope they all go and look up these wonderful uh, actors uh, from a very important part in holiday uh, in Hollywood history. But what what did you learn from as an actor being on that set? Um, I know that it, obviously Sylvester Stallone and you created a partnership to create those characters, but. You tell me, what was the... I have to say, you know, I, I think of Sylvester as a brother. Um, I mean, I have that, I have such regard for him. You know, he is a very educated guy. I don't think people 
realize that he's a wonderful poet. He's a very good painter. You know, he's a, a very, I'm going to use this word, Connie, that, that I uh, is misunderstood uh, when you describe a man, but a very vulnerable man, meaning receptive, a receptive man. And uh, he wrote Adrian. He wrote this extraordinary partner. He wrote the qualities in her. And I was really anxious to to bring all of her to support his uniqueness in that role. But on that set, what I noticed, and I, I will never forget that, because that was a, a partnership of acting with Sylvester, that 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 that's that 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 was rare. You know, we were just like two ballet dancers. You know what I mean? We were doing, we were picking each other up and putting each other down just right. Well, this reminds me of a story again that I've read about you giving acting advice to your to your sons, uh, two of whom are very well known uh, for their film performances and and the work that they've done. And I believe. Maybe it was Jason that you asked him to pay you a dollar so that he understood that he was getting a lesson and that you didn't give him the advice for free. Is that true? Yes. And I still charge them 50 cents to a dollar. I will always give acting lessons to any young actor who needs it because I love to share what, because I know it has to be shared. I know somebody has to say, hey, listen, you act for that space. But yes, I charge them anywhere from 50 cents to a dollar, Connie. Yes. And why, and you charge them because there's no such thing as a free puppy? Is that what the because, philosophy Because it was a lesson. And I felt unless I could say, put the dollar down there, right? First, <laughs> then we'll continue on. That, that wouldn't have been a respected lesson because after all, I was shifting from the role of mother to teacher. And that, that even though we are mothers and we smuggle in great teaching, I felt that I, I really wanted to share my craft, but I wanted that dollar. Um, people looking at your roles, if they were summarizing them at first blush, I mean, I... I look at the role that you played, obviously, Connie Corleone in The Godfather and Adrian. And the takeaway for me is that these are women who are actually quite strong, although they appear vulnerable. And the evolution of Connie Corleone from battered wife, essentially, to, you know, as manipulative and strong and strategic as anyone in the family over the course of the movies, when you... When you think about those characters now, I mean, it's been many, many years. How do you describe uh, Connie Corleone? In that society at that time and in society, but in what we'll call the underworld society or mafia world, she, she will have no place. Her place would be truly in the kitchen. Um, and you could see she's frustrated and the cost of that, obviously, is the death of a husband because he he was feeling less than and he betrayed. Okay, that's that section. When we came to number three, uh, I had a discussion with Francis, and and I knew that if you look at The Godfather, it's based on the king is dead, long live the king, right? The queen is dead, long live. It has that sense of, of the dance of royalty. So the mother is gone. Now I'm the mother, but I, I, I had this other idea, and he let me do it, which was her life had been so sacrificed or victimized. Actually, she's not a, 
that she becomes the the father as well. You know that kind of slip. In a way, she 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 doesn't want that family to leave its position, and we know that Al does want out. She wants to keep it going. So I wanted to give her a kind of uh, the father's power, or as she perceived it. And so she evolves a little bit differently. And you're right. It's, it's a kind of distorted power. I know that you mentioned at the, the start of this discussion, you're looking at TCM, but a lot of us in quarantine now are binge watching Netflix, Amazon Prime, pick your streaming service. Um, is that something that you do? Do you binge watch? I did, yeah, because I'm a compulsive person. I think of that or devil dogs. You know, I'm a big devil. Do- you know, I'm a candy eater. But uh, <laughs> uh, so, but I, I, I watched the older ones. I binged watched all of Cagney and Lacey because uh, I hadn't really seen it. And also, I looked at and I love the old. I was I looked at I, I have to say Columbo because I love the Technicolor, and I you could see I love. A lot of those things. And I also loved the old shows from 20 years ago because they had real musical scores. So I'm very sensitive to music. I was binge watching the older stuff. Mm-hmm. I, the reason I bring that up is because we are living in this world and nobody knows how, uh, you know, every day is a, the new abnormal. And there's, you know, been a delay in the releases of movies. And of course, I'd like to talk about yeah. the one that you're starring in. But that whether we will go back to movie theaters, if this will change the way that people permanently view cinema and move away from the big screen, which was already becoming a very expensive uh, proposition, especially for families, if you want to go to the movies, I mean that's that's an expensive day or night out. And if they'll turn yeah. to the small screens instead, and what do you think about that? Well, we know you can buy a large. Uh, screen and put it in your home. And there is something terribly exciting about the audience as a, a receiving all this energy and giving each other energy sitting next to that person in the darkened theater. It is a very, a very profound experience to be with a stranger laughing at the same thing. I hope that doesn't go away. Uh, but I, I, th- I think Maybe, maybe because movies are so formal now, you have to buy tickets ahead of time. You have to get, maybe they should lighten that up and go a little bit back to the wonderful feeling of, yes, let's go. Let's go to the movies. I wish that would come back. I do think, because I love theater, you know, I think theater will return uh, because, because it is, again, a place of, of very spiritual connections, you know, even though our screens are getting larger at home, we do need the other mysteriously or not to share an experience with. So I think it will come back. Well, I hope you're right. I have very fond memories of going to the movie theater and theater growing up in New York. And yeah. uh, audience participation, even if it's not official, it's those subtle things, people laughing together or reaching for someone's hand at a very emotional moment that make the experience more than just what's happening on the yes, screen. It becomes what we call a transformational moment. That's what essentially theater was. You could go to this theater and you could have an, a cathartic experience. You'd watch Oedipus and, oh my goodness, think of those things. Or And violence at that time was off, 
off stage, but you would come out of that experience transformed. That is my hope that we'll have a lot of that again, and I think we will. Let me switch to the current project that I know that you worked on and the movie release obviously has had to change because of the world we're living in, Working Man, which is about a factory worker. Uh, It's a theme that a lot of people can uh, relate to, a factory worker who has worked at a place for a very long time. You play his loving wife. The factory shuts down, but he continues to go to work um, because that is his life. That is part of his identity. And what, what drew you to that script? Well, I love the producer. I think Clark, you know, and, and I went, Robert Gray, who wrote the piece, uh, was a man of, of great taste. And as I read it, I realized this is the most peculiar piece in the world. The factory closes down. The husband and wife who've been together for some years speak not so much to each other, but this man continues to do his lunchbox and go to work. The factory's closed down. And as you read it on the page, he's doing this over and over, and you're going, "What? What is this?" And that's the and that's an outrageous thing. But it was was fascinating to pull it off. Peter Garrity does pull it off, and I have to say, Billy Brown gives a, a performance that's almost angelic. And they, you realize that Peter, my husband, he is going to work as a form of penance because there's another story there, which is uh, that he and his wife uh, lost a child and he Mm. couldn't grieve for that child. So he must go to work, but he does reopen the factory and Billy does help him open that factory. And therefore he is able finally to grieve for his child, but he's also to realize himself. And the greater statement is man, a man needs a job. A woman needs a job. You know, we need to wake up in the morning and have a structure. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is, and we do, by the way, and I believe this, the answer to most issues on this planet will be education, education, climate change, education, human rights, people, racial education, uh, because the factories cannot be the same old factories. We're going to have artificial intelligence. Everything will be education, and we will begin to start up and bring back extraordinary things with American inventiveness. The factory will be remade. Sorry, I got a little long-winded there, but... No, I I love it. It's very... speaks to the times that we're living in. And I have to say, Talia Shire, I love listening to you talk about things like binge-watching on a streaming service and (laughs) AI. You said at the top of our conversation before we we started recording that you're not a techie, but you love DOS. You you actually sound like quite the techie to me. Is there... it's yeah, DOS, tell me. DOS can't be a t- no because DOS DOS was simple. It didn't have it didn't have all those icons. It was the you just hit that key and that key and then that key. You know, it was I I I, I like things that to present themselves simply because my imagination will kind of do the rest. So I could work the DOS. I still have all my DOS computers. Wow! So a, a history of tech in your home. That's fabulous. I didn't even know. Thank you, Connie. I'm do coming. You- Silicon Valley, and I'll, 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 I'll invent something with you. Well, what would you invent? What would you like to have invented for you? What would I like? Yes. I, well, obviously, I, my oldest brother, August Coppola, was the Dean of Creative Arts at San Francisco State. So creativity, uh, acts of imagination, to me, at this moment in time, are everything. So I would like to come there and work on something 
to deal with the structure of creativity. Deal with the structure of creativity. Yes, there is a structure. And we might be home more and more. So we're going to have to start opening up that right brain uh, and or put music and dance back in schools. So I'm interested in the right side of the brain. What about, uh, you mentioned Roger Corman, you know, he had this two-minute iPhone or smartphone film festival. Did you make a two-minute film for him? Would you? Uh, of course I uh, of course I would but I didn't I think he's so brilliant that man is such a great he went to Stanford too by the way um but uh what an interesting what an interesting man what I am enjoying though about today and I think it's happening is there is an appreciation people are beginning to savor the films that opened and closed they have another opportunity to see them again mm-hmm. uh, and that is very exciting that a movie need not die, right? Because I'll tell you, it's a terrible feeling when nobody comes to your movie. Uh, and I did that with Jack Schwartzman. When we produced movies, nobody nobody came. And it's an awful experience. And the opportunity to bring them back and use the technology and give people an experience to revisit that original experience is very exciting to me. The name of this podcast is I'm So Obsessed. Is there something you're obsessed with? Well, I'm obsessed with many things, but I I, I think what I just, I think, what am I obsessed with? But by the way, what I, what I said just then about the opportunity to take the fine things and savor them and be appreciated and not let them die, I'm obsessed with that. As we go forward, we need, as you know, I used to tell my kids, you can bungee jump creatively, but you must be anchored. You know, mm-hmm. then we need very much now because this is a time of transformation. You can feel it. I know you can because that energy is around. We need to be anchored in our values that permit creativity and freedom. So I'm very into, obviously, you can hear it, creativity as an anchoring and spirituality that we could put those things together because we're going to have to go forward. That's what this time is about. Well, I think what you're speaking to is the fact that there are so many things that are disposable in our lives, in our culture, and that now we have ways where things are not just of the moment they come and go, that they can live and relive on and on, right? Yes, I am. Because when I told you this is a transformational time and we must be anchored, there is evolution, it, is, it makes everybody very anxious right now. That's part of what we are feeling. Something is new. We're not sure how we package ourselves yet or our souls. That's why we need to be anchored in things which have no sense of time. Great works of art. They have nothing to do with time, do they? They seem to have their own spirit. So I'm saying, yeah, we got to be anchored. We need to be anchored in things that bring joy, and are of quality, because we got to go forward. Whether we like it or not, we're going forward. So what are you anchored in? Is it your family then? Is that, is it this idea of working on creative projects, bringing things back to life? What is your anchor? Well, I I have to say, we are, mothers are teachers. Don't you agree with that in a way? And not that I, I mean, if I met your kid, he'd have to give me 50 cents. Two kids. Yes. (laughs) I'll give you a dollar. (laughs) I'll give you a dollar. 
I think our job at this time, I am certainly somebody growing older, is to bring wisdom because I feel very strongly that we need to to, to bring wisdom because this is a time of transformation and the and it's very it's very tough out there. It, I'm finally taken care of. Um, I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I'll say it. I keep in my purse a miniature constitution. I always, mm-hmm. always keep it because it's the most wild spiritual living document. And I have uh, such respect. So, and I keep that with me because I remember the stories of my grandparents about coming to this country. So uh, I feel as somebody growing older, my job is to anchor my, my family uh, and I told you I loved being a wife and mother in those values so they can go forward. Well, I love it. And it's so funny because if we ever meet in person, I will pull out my mini copy of the Constitution, which I carry around as well. You do that too? Of course. I am a journalist at a oh. time when reporters are under attack. Uh, you know, some fair of criticism. I don't mind criticism. But as an institution... Uh, the media plays a very important role in a democratic society. And as you know, it's under attack every single day. I feel that quite acutely. And it's a very bizarre concept to have my mother, who is an Italian immigrant who married my father after the war and came to Brooklyn, wow. to ask me when I go out and report now and what I'm doing, are you safe? Is it okay? That is a very odd question to have someone ask you. But she lived through World War II, and it brings it up very specific uh, images of what that culture and that time is like. And that worries me, which is why I have my pocket constitution and it gives me comfort as well. I am so happy. See, we share that. I'm sure we share many and many other recipes, right? Al dente <laughs> recipes. But the <laughs> constitution is the most magnificent living document. So I keep it with me because it's because it's pretty extraordinary, you know, and it makes me feel can I tell you, it makes me feel safe. Well, I I hope that the confidence that we both put in it are is, continues to be warranted and that the country remembers those ideals as we move forward at this very interesting time of change. I, I, I feel something wonderful is being born. I have great trust in what's taking place. There's such extraordinary love that people do feel for the other. I am seeing that. I know you are too. Thanks again, Talia Shire, for taking time to talk with me. And thank you for listening. We hope you'll take a moment to subscribe to I'm So Obsessed on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, take care.